I was kind of hoping you had hit record. <laughs> okay, we're on. Okay, cool. Um, not used to this amazing setup that we have today. I'm, I'm used to it either being in my brother's bedroom um, with his unmade bed behind my guest or being in my office with a couple of microphones. So being in the PBS studio is pretty fecking cool, um, particularly since I love PBS and actually I discovered your music via PBS in 2010-ish, I think. Um, Devil Woman. <laughs> oh, goodness. The Devil Woman song. You know, I actually really hate singing that song now. Really? And my band love it and, and want to keep playing it, but I really don't want to perform it anymore. Just funny. I never thought I'd be one of those musicians, but I I now understand when certain musicians say I don't want to perform that song anymore, or I want to. You know, I heard that Justin Timberlake rested sexy back, and I just thought that was the most <laughs> hilarious thing. He's rested it. That's ridiculous. But now I don't. You know, you kind of get sick of doing certain songs, and you feel like you've, you know, you've moved on. You know, from what you were writing at that time, and you, you don't want to go back to that place. And that was a really nasty song, and I was really angry at the time. <laughs> and I don't feel like that anymore. Not an angry young person anymore? No, and the song was written about my dad's girlfriend. Right. At the time. Mm. And she, she wasn't very nice to my dad, so I felt quite, I don't like this lady very much. Mm. Clearly you thought she was a devil woman. Exactly. you my 
Very warm welcome to you, my friends out there in the Coming Up Next work, and welcome to the next instalment of the Coming Up Next Ramble podcast. I'm Alistair Marks. That was I Hope You'll Be Very Unhappy Without Me by Chelsea Wilson. And this week's guest, you've guessed it, the woman behind that song, the woman behind the album, I Hope You'll Be Very Unhappy Without Me. She is the curator of Women of Soul, and a host on PBS. You can hear her show at 11 o'clock on Thursday mornings. My guest on the show this week, Chelsea Wilson. And you can catch Chelsea at the next Women of Soul show on the 23rd of April at the Bella Union. Her next solo shows are at the Art Centre in Melbourne on the 5th of June. And as you will come to learn, she has just taken up a Pretty awesome position at the Stonington Jazz Festival, which kicks off on the 12th of May. And there is plenty more of info about that coming up in this week's epic ramble. And as ever, friends, if you're digging what you're hearing, jump on iTunes, give us a review, head on over to Facebook, hit like on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash cunpodcast. We're a week strong into our Instagram journey, and we've got some pretty awesome stuff up there. It's at Podcast, same as on Twitter. Hit me up on social media and let me know what you think of the show. That's it from me. There's another awesome tune from Chelsea at the end of the show called One Day at a Time. But between now and then, please enjoy as Chelsea Wilson steps into the chat cave. What is it about that kind of overexposure or continued repetition of performing a piece of music that kind of makes it stale do you feel like you kind of well not stale but to put it to rest do you kind of feel like you get it out of your system and then it's like 
like you said, it's no longer relevant to your life or is it just that you get sick of playing the same thing or? A little bit of both. It kind of depends. When it's when I'm singing jazz, because there's so much more freedom, you can perform the song differently every single time. In fact, it's encouraged that you perform the song differently every time. Mm. There's so much more flexibility and freedom. So when you're singing jazz standards, even though they're not your compositions, you, you have this fluidity where you can change the tempo or change the groove or whatever. But when you've when you've recorded your own song and you've, you've put it in a certain format, there's a kind of expectation that you're going to do it as per that format. Yeah. At least I feel that pressure. Right. You know, you go to some gigs like I went and saw Lauren Hill a few years ago and so many people just complained mm. about how she didn't do any of the songs like they were used to on the recordings. People get so attached to how they hear it on the recording. And I really dug that she did everything completely different. It was cool. But it's that's something I'm, you know, potentially maybe need to explore more and try a different version of Devil Woman. But I think in particular <laughs> with that song, it's more just the lyrics mm. that I go, I wouldn't say this anymore. Yeah, right. How important is it for you? I mean, so much of your music seems deeply, deeply personal. And how important is that for you as a creative to kind of just write from your own experience and to really tap into your own truth? I think it's really important. And it's, yeah, all my writing has been very personal and autobiographical, Mm. you, you could say. I can't really write about something that, that hasn't happened or isn't my experience. I would kind of struggle with that. I'm not, I'm not, I guess I'm not a fiction writer. I mean, I love that idea about people creating characters and stories and so on, but I haven't ever been able to do that in my own writing. It's definitely what's happening at the time. Mm. And I mean, even that stuff is being written from someone's own experience. Like, I mean, you can only ever create from your own memories and your own experience of the world and that's going to bleed through whether it's fiction or autobiographical or whatever that may be. Um, But I'd love to um, step backwards for a moment uh, and ask you about your your childhood and and becoming this musician and um, this soul singer that you are now. Where, Where did that all kind of start for you? My love of music. Yeah. Um, straight away. As, so, as soon as I, I think I started singing before I started talking. Mm. Um, my mum played classical piano when I was growing up. My granddad also played organ. Um, and they were v- both very different musicians. My granddad couldn't read music and used to improvise. And he used to do, he used to do these hilarious party tricks my grandparents used to have these big house parties where they'd push all their furniture into the spare room so the whole house was empty so all their friends could come over and just dance. Yeah. And he used to do these party tricks where he'd put he'd put this sheet music up on the up on the organ and try and play it and then make a mistake and stop and then try and play it and then make a mistake <laughs> and stop and then he'd turn the music upside down and then he'd just start rocking out like just <laughs> He'd go into music stores and do similar things like pretend that he couldn't play and then just start just doing this whole thing. And yeah, yeah. 
he he bought one of the first kind of organs that came out where you could put a cassette in them and record straight onto a cassette and he used to write his own tunes and you know I don't think he ever did a gig he was just an amateur he was a mechanic he was an amateur musician that just loved to play mm. and so when I was a kid he used to make me cassettes like of Benny Goodman and other kind of mixtapes and he bought me a Walkman as my for a birthday gift which was the best present ever and it had a little microphone on it um so I'd go and like record interviews with the neighbors I used to do my own little radio shows back then and I'd <laughs> sing into it and yeah he always made me so excited about music um mum listened to music all the time I remember singing with her in the car mum had quite a few records um really a huge range of stuff ABBA to Bon Jovi her favorite band is Kiss hmm. but she played classical piano and she was always dancing. My parents always used to dance together in the lounge room. And my dad had a huge record collection. I think he's hocked it now. But yeah. he had a huge blues record collection. And they were very funny about letting me play the turn, use the turntable. But once I was deemed old enough to use the turntable, <laughs> I used to get into their records after school. What age did that happen? Maybe 12 or 13. They let me start using it. They were always paranoid I'd scratch their records or I'd wreck it. Right. Um, but yeah, I had this, I actually went through, I burned through a lot of cassette, like ghetto blasters as a kid. So I'm not surprised because mm -hmm. I used to just crank the hell out of them all the time. Yeah. And I used to, I was pretty obsessed with making my own mixtapes and making my own radio shows. I had that double ghetto blaster thing. Oh, yeah. So you could record and you know, like this, but I, I used to break them. I don't know quite heavy handed I don't know but I went <laughs> smashing the record yeah button. I went through so many tape machines that I think they were a bit freaked out about me wrecking their turntables so mm. yeah but I don't know the passion for music started very young and I started writing my own songs when I was about nine um, and I was obsessed with dancing and obsessed with film clips mm. used to watch rage or video hits and I used to make up my own dance routines and make all the girls at school be part of my dance group and make them learn routines that I created. Mm. I think I drove everyone mad, actually. <laughs> well, they obviously uh, encouraged your creative endeavours and pursuits. My parents? Mm. Yeah, my, my parents did, but my mum tried to teach me how to play piano when I was, I don't know, I learned how to read music before I could really learn to read English, but I just never had the discipline that, that she had. I was always more like my granddad in the way that I just wanted to make up my own stuff and improvise, whereas my mum is a real dot reader. She can't improvise at all. Mm. She has never written a tune in her life. She, But she had a really beautiful way of playing, but she always read the music. And so she taught me how to play um, and, you know, how to read music, but I just never had the patience for it. I used to just watch her fingers and then imitate it or just try and remember what she did. And she'd kind of like slap me on the wrist and be like, read the music, read the music. You're not reading it. And she got so frustrated. She went, I can't teach you anymore. Mm. And so she, she wouldn't teach me anything else. And I wish that they had have made me do piano lessons in, in many ways because then I'd be better. I'm a pretty terrible right. piano player. Um, but I've just never had the, the real discipline for reading the dots. Mm. Um, is that something that you would just go into learning now or do you feel like, nah, that, that moment's passed? I think it's passed for me. <laughs> um, it's just a really different 
part of your brain. And because my my musical ideas and my singing is on one level, but my hands are so far behind what I want to do mm. that I just I, I write the songs um, and then I just get my piano player to actually play them at the gig. Right. That's the safest bet for everyone involved, I think. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> you want to maintain your very high standard. Yeah. Mm. And I, I'm, I'm much better at performing, I feel, and conveying the story within the songs if I don't have my hands occupied with also trying to create the music underneath the, the vocals. Yeah. When did you start actually writing your own stuff? I think I was about nine when I wrote my first wow. song. I was pretty awful. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know if a nine-year-old's um, imagination or ability to articulate that would necessarily be at a particularly high level yet. So I think it's pretty cool that you would write something at nine. I wrote heaps of stuff, actually. I was quite a prolific um, little writer, I guess. Mm. I thought I'd really discovered this amazing secret with pop structures once you know i'd listen to so many you know like kylie or girlfriend or mm. whatever top 40 stuff that i could listen to and i discovered that structure of oh there's an intro there's a verse there's like a pre-chorus a chorus and then there's this bridge kind of part and once i discovered that i was like this is how you write songs this is the huh. structure yeah, i've yeah. i've found that what it is this is when you were nine yeah wow that's pretty amazing. Yeah, and I was kind of like, it's this many beats, it's you know, and I had all the the kind of the idea of rhyming, you know, the phrases and having the same amount of syllables per line and mm. and all that kind of stuff. And there were all these, you know, kind of imaginary, you know, breakup relationship things or girl powery songs, you know, because of the salt <laughs> and pepper stuff yeah. or, um, you know, songs about my best friends and. Yeah, I wrote heaps of, heaps of stuff and I remember taking it to my music teacher in primary school saying, this is the melody, this is the lyrics, can you help with coming up with the music underneath? And she just couldn't really do it. She was, she said, okay, I'll, I'll have a think about it, I'll, I'll get back to you, never did. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't until high school when I started playing guitar that I could actually kind of learn about chords and actually have chords underneath. Mm. All the lyric ideas. Start getting some theoretical yeah. knowledge. Yeah. Fucking theory. Um, do you remember the first time that you ever performed? Performed on the stage in at all? Probably. Oh, it could, could even be just in front of your parents. Oh, well, yeah, that's probably, you know, the day I was born. I'm sure <laughs> I put on a show for them. <laughs> I used to make my brother get up and perform as well. Poor brother. I did the same. Did you? Yeah. Well, not music. We'd uh, I'd write plays and things like that. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I I did that. You know, I used to read. I used to read the um, books and record that onto tapes for mum to listen to in the car. Mm. You know, where I'd even do the ding, turn the page. You know, and all <laughs> that kind of all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I started doing dance classes. I think mum started taking me when I was maybe three or four. Um, but I didn't, I didn't study dance properly or stick with it, to be honest, because I just wanted to do my own routine. So the hmm. dance teacher would be trying to make us do something. And I thought it was terribly daggy or mm. outdated, or I thought, you know, they'd use some really daggy music and I had my own ideas. Mm. And what sort of stuff would you make your brother perform? 
Oh, yeah, dance routines. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, make him do dance routines or... My brother um, studied flute, so, you know, I try and play piano and get him to play flute with me. I'm still trying to get him to play flute. I'm trying to get him to play jazz flute. That's been quite unsuccessful. (laughs) He won't do it. He's like, Mum, he just reads the dots. I said to him, look, I'll transcribe. Mm. I will write it dot for dot. And so you just approach it like normal, even though it's soul music. Mm. But he's like, oh, I think think you better get someone else. Right. I'll keep tra- I'll keep working on it. You could get Ron Burgundy to do that. Yeah, well, that bloody I really really wish that what's his name, the guy Will Ferrell. I wish he had have chosen some other instrument because he <laughs> has just made jazz flute, which is one of the best things ever, something that's really daggy and people that people that don't or didn't listen to jazz and didn't really dig flute. Now, you know, if you say anything about jazz flute, they instantly think about Ron Burgundy. And I know Emma Peel, who has a radio show here on PBS, really hates Austin Powers. And I feel the same about Ron Burgundy. Right. <laughs> Not a fan of the Anchorman. No, I don't mind the film, but I just hate that it's created this thing about jazz flute. It makes people not want to listen to flute in a jazz context, but... Jazz flute's unreal. Mm, jazz flute is unreal. Yeah, it's great. I agree with you. Um, and so you, you, you. Uh, I kind of stopped you before when you were you were going to tell uh, tell me about performing for the first time on stage. Do you remember that moment? I do remember the first dance concert. I remember that having my hair pulled back really tight and that the hairspray really smelled. And having all the foundation on my face, which felt really yucky. And the leotard was kind of scratchy. And the lights were really bright. But I really enjoyed it and loved it. Mm. And then mum bought me a packet of potato chips afterwards. (laughs) My mum was really strict with food. She wouldn't let us have anything processed or blah, blah, blah. Mm. Um, So when I used to go to kids' parties and there'd be junk food, I used to really just gorge on it. And I was often ill. Like I'd spew in the car on the way home. Yeah, right. And... After that, mum would be like, okay, I think we need to start incorporating some kind of unhealthy food into the diet here and there because otherwise you just – if everything is just organic carrots and so on, then you do get really ill mm. when you have a big thing. So I remembered this concert and I remembered the chips. Mm. It's funny those kind of junk food rewards, like <laughs> yeah. you get something bad for doing something good. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. I remember – I was not a massively sporty kid and I remember, actually I just remembered this as you were saying, telling that story about playing footy as like, must have been an eight or a nine or maybe ten year old boy, just being not interested at all but being rewarded with Red Rooster after training sessions (laughs) and that was like, okay, cool, that was enough to keep me going to the training sessions for probably about two months and then I was like, no. Not, not worth it. No, not playing footy. Not worth it. That said, I did. I, I did do gymnastics as a as a young kid. Wow. Yeah, which is a really cool and weird thing to reflect on. All my mates were playing football or soccer, and I was doing handspring flips and things like that, which I could not do now if you asked me. So. Oh, I don't know. Have you been to bounce? I have been to bounce. Did you like it? I loved it. <laughs> um. 
I also am a massive fan of wrestling and often fantasize about being a wrestler. Wow. Which I think comes from that gymnastics feeling. Yeah, I love that feeling of kind of flying through the air. It's pretty cool. Anyway, that was a weird segue. Um, when did you start looking into um, performing as a, a singer and a kind of, um, I guess, a solo artist? Or did you start go down the band route first? Um, I guess I kind of got into singing, you know, in a sort of odd way because I was all just about the dancing, really. Even though I was writing my own songs, I never kind of thought of myself as a singer or musician. I was always very much about dancing. Mm. And then my mum joined the local theatre company in the town where I grew up. And so my mum was always on the stage. And my mum has terrible vision. Um, she's she's basically like she's blind at night time. Right. I can't remember what it's called. Mm. But when the sun goes down, right. <laughs> she's she's very vision in, impaired. So with the stage lights being so bright, when mum would come off the stage, she wouldn't be able to see to walk through the wings to backstage. Mm. So I used to hang in the wings and then help mum walk backstage. Oh, wow. And I used to help her learn her lines and read the script. So I'd do all the characters. So mum would be making dinner mm. and I'd sit at the kitchen bench and we'd go through the lines and I'd be every other character in the show. Wow. And mum would read her lines. So by the time the production was actually going, I knew everyone's parts. Mm. And this one production that mum was in, um, which was under Milkwood, there was a big flood in the town. And one of the girls who was in the show, she had three different characters within the show. She got flooded in, so she couldn't leave her home. So it was about three hours before the curtain went up and mum was like, well, Chelsea's here. Chelsea knows the part. She can do it. And the director's like, well, she's like 11. She can't, you know, it's not really going to work. But they didn't really have many cho any choices really. Yeah. So they announced to the audience before the show started that one of the cast was unavailable because of the flood and that, you know, there'd be another – Act, actress stepping in who would be having the script on stage. Um, but they didn't tell the stage manager that. So just before I was about to go on the stage, the stage manager was like, you can't go on stage with a script and took the script off me and then pushed me on. Mm. So I had to just, I kind of knew that bit, but because mum wasn't in that scene, it wasn't one that mum and I had been rehearsing. Yeah. So I kind of knew, so I sort of had to improvise. Terrifying. Yeah, and <laughs> I was three characters in that show, so I had to do all the costume changes and run around. But then I ended up doing the next five shows of that production. And then after that, the one of the theatre company directors had written a new play and said that they thought I was great in Under Milkwood, and so they wrote a part for me in the next production. And the, But the next production was a musical so that's where I got my first ever singing part. Wow. And at this point, I'd ever, only ever sung in a school choir and in my bedroom with the hairbrush. <laughs> so that was the first time I had to actually sing. And it was a very odd show. It was called Do Vulcans Rock and Roll. And what it was about was, you know, Vulcans, like Vulcan from Star Trek? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Spock. So in this production, the the plot was was that there was a group of Vulcans uh, orbiting like nearby going past earth and had noticed all of this pollution going into space and so the vulcans were flying down to earth to warn us about these pollution issues 
but to learn about Earth before they got here, they'd intercepted some space pod mm. with 1950s music and other relics in it. Right. So they came to Earth and they knew all about Johnny Be Good and all of these kind of songs like the platters and stuff. And so the Vulcans came to Earth and taught us rock and roll dancing. Mm. It was that's that's seriously the plot. And my role was a Vulcan, so I yeah. had to wear those big ears and sing It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To wearing a Vulcan outfit. Right. And that was my first um singing in Foray into the professional music world. singing role. <laughs> wow. What was how did that go for you? It was great. It was yeah. so much fun. Sounds like a lot of fun. It was excellent. I mean, it was so much better than school, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, obviously, I still was going to school, but, mm. you know, rather than, I don't know, playing netball and hanging out with my friends on the weekend, I was doing Vulcan makeup and going to costume fittings and going to rehearsals. And my mum was in that show as well. So it was great. That's that's awesome. How was, did you enjoy performing with your mum? Yeah. It was, it was great. It was terrific. Mm. I wish my mum would get back on the stage, but... Yeah, she's she's too busy now. I think her career is has taken off. So, right. I don't. I think she's. I, I'm always dreaming she's going to get back back on the back on the stage and start trading the boards again. Mm. What does she do these days? She works for Melbourne Polytechnic. Okay. Yeah, she's a senior educator and managing director of programs. And wow. Yeah. That sounds pretty cool. Yep. Not really. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh-huh. I'm so proud of her. It's amazing. Yeah. How how important or what kind of role do you think it plays having um, parents who are creative and, and kind of help you to foster and nurture that creativity? I think it's really, if you've got it, it's, it's hugely valuable. Mm. I'm really close with my family, which you could probably tell because I talk about them a lot. Hmm. I'm really close with both my mum and, and my dad. I mean, they're separated now, um, but I'm close with both of them and my brother as well. I mean, I'm the first professional musician in the family um, on either side. There's no real, you know, but there's always there was that passion and love for music. Mm. And I think that's, that's what really um, set me on, on the path, I guess, in a lot of ways. But, you know, the fact that they've been so encouraging has been, you know, terrific. Mm. I mean, I've got the opposite parent than, than you'd think. Like, mum mum was telling me to quit my job for years. You right. should quit. <laughs> you should just be doing music. You shouldn't be doing that job. Yeah, wow. <laughs> it's like, but I like working in radio. And she's like, yeah, but you should be just singing. <laughs> like, mum, it's using my voice. It's the same thing. It's not the same thing. It's not, no, it's not the same thing. It's not the same. No. But, yeah, I love how supportive she is. And I ran a possible fundraising campaign for the pressing costs for my album. And mum was um, so supportive with it and she helped me. She made these badges um, that say, I hope you'll be very unhappy without me on them. Mm. She made like 200 of those things. That's the name of your album. Yeah, yeah. yeah she That's made. Awesome. She's like, people love badges and they love getting free stuff, so we'll do some badges. <laughs> and yeah, my brother helped me. I screen printed tote bags that would come with the LP version of the album and my brother helped me screen print them and mum and my stepdad helped me pack all of the records and all the goodies into the post boxes to send out to all the people that pledged. It's amazing. Yeah, it's lovely. And mum and Greg have done, you know, they've 
They've done merch at my shows and wow. all that kind of stuff. Mum cool. helped out as a crew member for the Women of Soul photo shoot. <laughs> yeah, they're great. They're really supportive. That's amazing. Uh, I'm, you know, a massive advocate of working with family and, and kind of keeping things in that kind of grassroots and indie sort of sector and sphere. And I think it's amazing. I mean, I worked on a charity event touring around Australia with a guy who was on a unicycle. And, you know, that was really, you know, he's got quite a bit of profile in Australia, but it was run like a grassroots event. You know, we, it was it was three of us on the road. There'd be people that would come and go, but everything was kind of run by about five people. Um, wow! And it was all kind of within that kind within his family kind of unit. And even still to this day, I mean, I was catching up with him a few days ago, and he was telling me about all this merchandise that the charity has sold. Uh, this year alone it's an extraordinary amount and he said yeah I'm just going to go around to his sister's place and they're going to there's about 10 of them just going to sit around and do all the packaging and pack it off and send it away and I'm like he's saying how awesome it is to be able to do that with your family and to really um, not shore up that's the wrong word but how it really can just solidify familial kind of relationships um and, you know, I love working with, I work with my brother quite a bit um, and, you know, really kind of love that whole keeping it in the family sort of thing, which I guess is what you're talking about. Um, yeah, we we help each other out, mm. read each other's. My brother's gone back to uni, so, you know, we read his assignments and, you know, talk about work stuff with each other. It's great. Mm. So when did you when did you decide that soul was the kind of route that you wanted to go down? I, I noticed um, when I was doing a bit of research that you had some pretty amazing kind of uh, inspiration grounded in. Um, the soul kind of world in terms of singers like Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald. What was it about that that really kind of grabbed you? I didn't really get into soul until I moved to Melbourne. I think Melbourne is, it's the soul capital of Australia. Mm. And, <laughs> well, it is. Melbourne's got soul. It does. It, it really does. It's the soul capital of Australia. And the soul scene in Melbourne is is really special and it's quite it's quite unique to the rest of the rest of the no one else is really doing it really in the rest of the country not like we are in Melbourne. Mm. I didn't really get into soul that much prior to living here. Just the sounds of what you hear on the radio particularly working here at PBS the soul programs really inspired me. I was planning on recording a jazz album but I just I don't know, the, the experiences that I was going through at the time and I was going through a really kind of nasty relationship and a kind of heavy breakup and the kind of stories that I wanted to tell seemed to fit better in the soul genre. I mean, there's a lot of heartbreak songs within jazz as well, but the kind of really gut-wrenching sort of sound of soul music really moved me mm. and it's 
I guess you could call my album quite a genre piece in that way that I intentionally went, okay, I want to write. I want to convey these stories in a soul context. And so I specifically sought out to work with the people in Melbourne that are known for that sound, which is why I recorded with Jake Mason from Cooking on Three Burners and we recorded the album in his studio. Yeah, yeah. And as far as knowing how to record a a soul genre sounding piece, you know, he's definitely one of the the best guys you could you could imagine for that. Yeah, for sure. He understands the genre, he knows the sounds. We recorded the album to tape, so it's got that warm sound to it. Um, and we we work really well together. And then we put the band together. Um, so Lance Ferguson from the Bamboos on guitar. Wow. Ivan Choi also from Cooking on Tree Burners on drums. I had Danny Ferrugia, um, who at the time was playing in the Bamboos, um, on some of the tracks as well. Lucas Taranto, who's Gautier's bass player. Mm. Um, yeah, just an incredible... Man, that's an epic lineup. Yeah, some great <laughs> musicians who understand the genre, which is really important. So, you know, all of my songs were just me playing piano and singing, you know, my very basic piano. <laughs> um, and there was no rehearsal. There was no, I mean, that's that's how these guys do it. You kind of play the song in its most basic format and say, going for this kind of thing. And because they just know that music so well, they knew where I was coming from and we just played every song two or three times and, and that was that was it. It's mm, amazing. So, you know, that's that was an important thing for me is getting the right players on the album because it, to create that sound. Mm. How, how much, uh, I guess, research do you do before you come to a point like this in, uh, musically to really have a solid understanding uh, of perhaps the history or um, the construction and infrastructure of this kind of stuff? I guess I never thought I was actually doing research because I was just lis- – I listened to so much new music and so so much old – I just listened to music constantly. Mm. So I never thought I was really intentionally doing research, but I guess I was listening to soul kind of pretty obsessively for for quite some time thinking, gee, this is so great, and but always thinking I'm going to record this jazz album. And then it just kind of – the two just sort of linked up, I guess. Mm. Yeah. But really, I, my, re- my research and listening was always more on the performance side of things and the kind of overall feel that I wanted to capture, where it was Jake as album producer who really knew the recording techniques required to make it sound a particular way. And I think this is a really key thing regardless of what genre you're trying to do. If you want it to sound of an era or you want it to sound a particular way, then you need to learn the techniques that are used for to, to gain that, that kind of thing. So, you know, if you want to, if you want a picture to look like a Polaroid, then you should get a Polaroid camera. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's just... Logical. It's, yeah, yeah. Rather than using a digital camera and, you know, you can use filters and Instagram or whatever to try and make it look like a Polaroid. But if you really want a Polaroid, you, you got to get the Polaroid camera, mm. a real one, like the old one. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a, a similar thing. You know, re- we recorded on an original tape machine. We recorded all live in studio. And I think sometimes with more modern recordings, uh, you know, trying to sound like 
older soul records. That's perhaps where they miss the mark is recording it digitally and then trying to synthetically make it sound like that, which can sound a bit forced. There was nothing really forced about the record. We just went, this is this is the approach of, you know, this. Jake said, this is how, you know, if we record a tape, it's going to have that warm sound. Mm. So if you want that, let's use the tape machine. I was like, it sounds great. Mm. And does that dramatically increase your expenses for something like that? I guess, yeah. I mean, tape and stuff is expensive, but recording's expensive regardless. So, you know, the, I guess in, in one way, if I had different musicians that didn't know the, the genre as well, it might have taken us a lot longer to record because we would have had to do things many, many more times. So you pay more studio time, whereas you might yeah. pay, you know, more to use a tape machine or particular musicians, but they get the job done faster. Yeah, So, sure. you know, there's pros and cons and... And, you know, it's good to get do your research, as you said, and, and work with a producer who really understands you and where you're coming from to guide you with some of those decisions. Mm. And I guess also if you've got this vision for something, you want to see that vision through. You don't want to necessarily have to compromise on certain things. I mean, I believe that, you know, compromise is kind of a key in a collaborative process, but if it's something as kind of rich and specific as the tone or the um, the quality of the recording, you're never really going to be able to change that down the track. So I think to maintain the integrity of that initial idea is probably quite important. Mm. Um, the album, as you said before, is called um, I Hope You'll Be Very Unhappy Without Me. And you said um, you were going through a pretty rough breakup yeah. at the time of uh, writing and recording that. Um, and as we sort of discussed at the head, uh, you really put your kind of, you make your work really personal. Um, and I read something that the X that perhaps this is based on, to, uh, um, contributed to your possible campaign. <laughs> yes, he did. Well, um. I'm I'm curious to hear about your experience in this with without having to go into too much detail but something that I talk to a lot of people on my show about is fostering and maintaining romantic relationships in artistic and kind of creative field because you know we're not like regular people we don't have jobs that are 9 to 5 and we you know might around the country or go overseas and mm-hmm. and lead these lifestyles that are unusual um, and some people manage to create relationships that are quite extraordinary where the two people really love and understand each other and, and can kind of magnify those dreams and understand and other people perhaps don't have such great experience in that kind of sphere and I'm going to guess that the basis of this album falls more into the latter category um what was what was that catharsis for you i guess you're you're right you de- you're definitely right it was there was a you know i mean in every relationship you would hope there is you know there's pros as well as as well as cons i guess the you know not every song on on the album is necessarily about the relationship, but it definitely inspired a chunk of it. 
I guess the music kind of explains it. I think the song Through With Loving You sort of wraps up the themes of the relationship mainly. I guess the music sort of does the talking mm. about it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think there was definitely some aspects of being with a musician that maybe didn't sit that well. Um, so he was a musician as well? No, he wasn't a musician. Oh. I think, you know, dealing with me, I guess some of that was What was his profession? He works in the automobile industry. Okay. Mm. So quite a different Completely experience different. of life. Completely different. But they say opposites attract. Mm. And we're still really good friends. So, which is a really good thing. Mm. Did you find it uh, difficult or kind of um, exposing to put something so kind of raw into your work and put it out into the world? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I told a few friends, I think I'm going to call my album, I hope you'll be very unhappy without me. And people will be like, oh, you can't do that. <laughs> I, I admire the, um, the, uh, the courage that it would take to kind of really follow through with something like that. Oh, well, thank you. Well, yeah, but it's the title is, you know, from the title track is actually a cover on the album. So it's also, you know, partly in homage to the late Esther Phillips who recorded that song. And I love Esther Phillips. Mm. And I love the song. I just love it. And I actually wasn't planning on recording that song for the album at all. I'd recorded I'd recorded the album already. And then I was in London and I just had been listening to Esther just constantly. And I hadn't come up with an album title and nothing seemed to fit. And I didn't want to call it Chelsea Wilson because I thought, well, I mean, I think... I mean, I, I don't know, maybe one day I will do a self-titled album, but I kind of, unless the album's actually about all stuff to do with with me, which I know it kind of is, as we were saying, because it's a very personal record, but <laughs> I don't want to name something as me because that just sounds so definite of like the this is me. You know, it's I much prefer to kind of do things that are more conceptual. Mm. And I was in London and I was listening to this song and I just thought, no, this is, I, I need to record this song and this should be the title of the album. Mm. So I went back into the studio and we'd finished the album six months prior and then I just went and recorded this. So I think this song sounds, it sounds very different to the rest of the album. Um, but I think we made it work. Mm. It's a bit more modern sounding. It's more kind of, you know, mid, late 70s sounding, whereas some of the other tracks are, you know, a bit more early 70s or kind of late 60s sounding, I guess. Mm. This this is definitely more of the rare groove kind of era. Um, but, yeah, I you know, it's funny. Um, and I think my ex takes it quite well. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you guys are still friends, I imagine he probably does. Yeah. And, you know, you do, you do your best, you know. You, you do your best to, to work these things out at the time and sometimes things just don't, don't work out. Mm. Yeah, sometimes two people, try as they might, are just not suited to one another. Yeah. Mm. And then you kind of get into that <laughs> uh, headspace afterwards of, I guess, like you've titled the album. I hope you'll be very unhappy without me. I think everybody relates to the title. I think everybody has felt that 
whether it be with a job or a family member or, you know, you've quit your sporting team and you kind of just have that, you know what, screw you. Mm. And I hope life sucks now that I'm for you, <laughs> now that I'm. I'm, I'm, I'm going onward and upward. Yeah, that's right. And I think we all have a little, a little moment like that at some time of our lives. Mm. So I think everyone, I, and I think that the album title and, and that song and that kind of concept is what people have resonated with, with the album. Mm. And I've had some really interesting feedback from people going through divorces or, you know, nasty situations where they've said, oh, I've been listening to your album. Yeah. You know, just <laughs> which I never expect. I never expected. But um, I'm glad that the album's been able to help some people. I mean, I listened to a, an interview with Esther Phillips, who who said something like, I sing, I sing the things that women are thinking but they feel they can't say mm. and so you know they they might be in a situation where they can't say these things to their partner but they'll put on my record and and their men might hate me and my albums and my record but don't care and I thought that was so funny but I thought well yeah same same with me like it's it's really uncomfortable I'm not great at, at talking about you know feelings or blah blah or whatever as well but mm. music is is a way that we can express certain things that are hard to say. Mm. And it's very accessible as well. And, yeah, I guess it's a way of expressing yourself without needing to justify or, you know, because it's kind of, it's poetic and it's creative expression, so. And it's know. completely one-sided. It is completely one-sided. It's completely just my side of the story here. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure, I'm... I mean, nobody is perfect. Mm. No, nobody is perfect, and there's always it takes two to tango and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, your music is—it's all about you know you get to say it how you wanted to say it, and there might be times in your life where you don't get to have the last word or you have to compromise. But when you put it down in a, in a song, you don't have to compromise anything. Mm. Mm. And you get to disguise things in metaphor if you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um. Something you said in there, uh, you um, in the interview that you were talking about, and you said uh, about women who can't express themselves. And one thing that I've been following that you've been doing um, is women of soul, which you know I think um, we said off air. I said off air that you were a, a massive advocate for women, probably not only in soul music in the music industry in general and probably in any kind of creative industry. Um, before I do ask you about Women of Soul specifically, what's your experience of being a female vocalist and, um, re and DJ um, been like to this kind of point? Have you found it to be um, oppressive or have you found it to be pretty pretty cool or what's your experience been? I've been very fortunate to have had some really excellent experiences and some very supportive um, people who haven't, you know, kind of judged me, I guess, you know, for being for being a woman. But then I have had those experiences as well. Um, I guess it doesn't really it doesn't really matter what industry you're in or women face these experiences or any kind of um you know, minority, I, I guess. I mean, we, we are in a, in a patriarchal society, so, um, you know, things still aren't 100%. Things aren't equal as yet. Mm. Um, 
I have been – I'm very supportive of women in any industry or any context. I'm all, I'm all for the, the sisterhood. So um, I do what, whatever I can to support women in music because that's the industry that I'm in. So I have some ability there to, to try and make changes. I'm on the Women in Music Advisory Panel for Music Victoria. I curate the Women of Soul series. Um, I mentor younger women. I've had female, you know, interns through my role at PBS as, as well as dudes, of course. Um, and it's something that I'm very passionate about. I have had some negative experiences, not, you know, nothing, more just language that's used. I mean, even just the term, you know, putting female in front of DJ is one of those things, female DJ. Um, all the places I DJ have been really fantastic like the guys at Howler and um, I DJ at the Fox and they're all just brilliant. Mm. The weirdest one's been with sound engineers who always seem to tell me what kind of microphone that I use. It's like, well, I know what kind of microphone I use because <laughs> I'm the one that brought it here. Yeah, yeah. But I get this a lot at gigs where I take my microphone and I say, I've got my own mic, this is what I want to use. And then they go, oh, yeah, well, you know, that, act- that microphone there is called a condenser. And so... It probably won't work that well here and start explaining it to me. And it's like, I know it's a condenser. It's my mic. Mm. I, I bought it. Yeah, it's just this kind of condescending thing of I, I wouldn't know what my, my equipment was. Whereas mm. I kind of think if I was a male singer, you wouldn't start telling me how my microphone works. I could be wrong, but it's just... I've never in my experience heard a sound engineer talk in those same ways or sound en- sound engineers that touch me. Mm. when I'm setting up that you just get that hand on your lower back. Excuse me, love, and they walk past you, but they they oh. glide their hand over your back as they move around the stage, whereas they don't touch your male band members. Yeah, uh, that makes me feel yuck. Yeah, there's just some of those things or, you know. But, um, yeah, it's it's certainly not, not the worst thing that's happened. In, mm. in the music industry for women. So I have been quite fortunate. Mm. But, you know, we keep fighting the good fight. Yeah. And so you created this uh, Women of Soul. I'm not sure what would you, what, what the right It's a collective. It's a collective, okay. So <laughs> I call it a collective. Yeah, so the Women of Soul is a live performance series uh, which celebrates female songwriters and vocalists uh, that write original music. Um, it's quite expensive putting on gigs and but together with all the singers combined we put together a a band so rather than having five bands all have to come to a gig we just use the one band and so there's no set breaks or anything like that so it's a real high energy show where it's just one every singer does a bunch of their originals one after the other and we do a few duets and a few group songs we're not a girl band um when we do sing together sometimes it can be a real mess because the singers are all very much lead singers so our voices don't always necessarily blend into that well it's kind of like having tina turner with you know kylie minogue and nora jones or macy gray all together it's a bit like you know it's not gonna work but mm. um we always <laughs> get up and sing a few songs together at the end which is a lot of fun yeah. and it's just been a, a great way for us all to support each other in the scene and to create our own community and our own voice mm. and what's your i guess trajectory for that in either in its current incarnation or in a kind of evolved version 
I'm planning on touring it. That's my dream. It's tricky, though, with each individual vocalist, individual touring schedules and so on. Mm. But I love the idea of taking it on the road, um, possibly taking it to London and going, this is what we do here in Melbourne. This is the Melbourne soul thing and, and take it elsewhere mm. would be great. Really culturally brand. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I like that idea. Well, people are shocked. You know, when you go to London and you, you talk to people about soul, they're like, what is going on down there? What is going, what's in the water? You know, because between <laughs> like Hiatus Coyote or the Bamboos and, you know, there's all this incredible music coming out of Melbourne. People are like, what's going on? Mm. What, what's going on in that town? Mm. And I always kind of think that community radio is played a lot in that. That's probably my, my bias being a... PBS broadcaster, but I think PBS and Triple R, um, you know, and so many other great community stations such as 3CR and Joy FM and MBS, you know, it's a powerhouse of community radio here in Melbourne. But I think that 35 odd years of playing incredible music on the airwaves has really influenced this generation, whereas in other, you know, a generation of musicians, whereas in other cities in Australia, they haven't had that. Mm. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I think across the board in in creative industries, there's a real sense of community in Melbourne, and it's kind of this we kind of rise together mentality almost. I, I know in the film industry, it's certainly that way, and I, but I've heard in in Sydney, it's perhaps not quite so uh, communal. It's a bit more. Um, uh, I was going to say all for one. That's the wrong thing to say, though. Uh, it's more competitive than communal. Um, I've heard that too. Mm. But it's the music industry, look, to compare between Sydney and Melbourne is quite fascinating in, um, in the fact that Sydney has all the big head offices. So all your big record labels like Sony, Warner, etc., cetera, uh, Universal, you know, like the Sony office in Sydney has like 150 employees or whatever. But down here, they've got a little office in Richmond with like 10 people. Mm. You know, and even APRA, like our um, Copyright Collection Society, they've got, you know, 400 people or whatever working in the massive building in Ultimo. But then down here in Melbourne, they've just got a small office Mm. also in Richmond, which is like 10 people or 15 people or something. It's all very Sydney-weighted when it comes to the business end of things, which I guess is part of, you know, the kind of Australian history of Sydney being our kind of first city and um, where all the big kind of companies set up and our TV stations and so on are there. So all the publishers are there really except um, Mushroom, which is here in Melbourne. But it's all very weighted with the, the financial aspect of the industry. But then all the gigs and stuff are kind of down here. mm Mm, it's similar in film. Uh, Screen Australia is like 10 people in the office in, in Melbourne, but, you know, huge office up in Sydney. Um, and, you know, lots of the bigger agencies and there's Fox Studios there. And, yeah, it's... it's. Um, I guess it's kind of... Sydney is kind of projected or presented as the kind of creative area or city of of Australia... But from my point of view, I don't know. I feel like Melbourne is really the kind of creative and cultural hub. Um, I think so. I love it here. I, I'm i a total Melbourne girl. I think Sydney's fabulous. I love to go up for a weekend yeah. or something. But Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, home home is it's definitely Melbourne for me. Mm. 
Um, you kind of threw out a few names before people like Hiatus Coyote and the Bamboos. You, were, you know, were speaking about cooking on three burners earlier. And there's some other amazing acts that are really starting to pop now. Um, Clary Brown and the Bang and Rackets come to mind. Um, who are some of the um, really awesome kind of acts that you're starting to see come through that you think might start making a bit of a splash soon? The Meltdown. You've got to check out The Meltdown. Oh, yeah? Yeah. The singer of The Meltdown, his name's Simon Burke. Um, he plays keys. He's also a drummer. He writes. He's, he has the most beautiful voice. Wow. Just amazing. Mm. And The Meltdown is a band project that he started with saxophonist Lachlan McLean. And they're writing some really incredible stuff. They haven't put out an album yet, just a couple, just a 45, mm. um, just a couple of tracks so far through the Hope Street label. Um, Hope Street also have acts like Bombay Royale, Cactus Channel, etc. Um, but yeah, the Meltdown are just absolutely fantastic. Um, another group that's putting out an album later on this year is called Fulton Street, led by Shannon Wick, who I've got performing at the next Women of Soul show. She's incredible. She's a powerhouse. Wow. And she's such a petite woman, but this huge voice. They're, they're way more on the kind of northern soul, heart of funk kind of angle, whereas the Meltdown's more on the southern soul, kind of Ray Charles kind of tip more that country soul whereas Fulton Street are just like full-on pumping northern soul yeah cool with a big horn section and they're really fun mm. I think they're great mm. I'll check them out when's when is the next women of soul April 23 we're doing a show back at the Bella Union that's awesome yeah I love that, that space mm. I really like the Bella yeah cool. we haven't women of soul haven't performed there um for a few years now so we're excited about going back there mm and you've recently taken a new position um, with the Stonington Jazz Festival. Yeah, so I'm the artistic director of the 11th Stonington Jazz, which is a thrill and very exciting. Last year, um, I was asked to come on board to produce a few shows for them, which I did. We put on a concert at the Melbourne Town Hall, which was a tribute to Kerry Bedell, mm. um, Australia's first lady of jazz, you could call her, um, who was a Sydney-based jazz vocalist who had this incredible voice and an amazing story and was just really under-recognised. Um, she won ARIA Awards. She performed at the MGM Grand in Vegas. She was the face and the voice and lady of the Sanyo That's Life commercials that were on <laughs> mainstream television in the 70s. She had an ABC radio show and then she passed and it was kind of no one even knew who she was or she's like it's very Australian. I don't think we're very good at celebrating our kind of heroes mm. and heroines. Mm. Um, it's a tall poppy thing. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, she she was very underground. She stopped performing. She was very ill. And so she, she stopped performing for, for 10 years or so before she passed away. So she kind of just sort of quietly departed I guess so um, I produced a tribute show for her which was um, four vocalists in the ATM 15 big band performing Carrie Bedell works and I also put a special women of soul edition together for the festival last year which which had a jazz bent and those shows went really well so they asked me to come on board this year and artistic direct the whole program which was Really exciting. Mm, I've never programmed a festival before. Wow. Um, and they've been really supportive and encouraging of my ideas. Um, and I'm thrilled with the program. 
Yeah, wow. Cool. Who are some of the, uh, or what are some of the highlights? One of the shows I'm really excited about is a tribute to Gil Scott Heron. Oh, yeah. Um, love Gil Scott Heron. Um, I've wanted to do this show for quite a long time. Um, and I'm really excited about the lineup. I've got Vince Jones singing, um, as well as Walter Saluni and Hayley Kramer. So it's a real mix, the lineup of Ryan Ritchie from the Ra Project. So it's a real mix of jazz, soul and hip-hop artists coming together to perform some of Gil's work and also his poetry. I've got an Auslan interpreter coming as well. Wow. I'm excited about that. That's happening at the Chapel of Chapel. That's extraordinary. And another project I'm particularly excited about is a screening of Mad Max at the Yasta. So the original 1979 Mad Max, but we're calling it Mad Jazz. And I've got the Shaolin Afronauts, who is this 11-piece future jazz Afrobeat act from Adelaide coming over to play a new score to the film. Wow. <laughs> so it's it's a improv like it new completely new soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. Um at the Asta, wow. which would have been, you know, one of the first places where Mad Max was screened mm. in 1979. And some of the scenes of the film were actually shot in the city of Stonington, so it's a pretty incredible um, time for the festival and it's never been done before anywhere and got permission from George Miller to to go ahead which was amazing because I think they're pretty busy at the moment with Fury Road and mm. you know the Mad Max franchise is keeping them well occupied without having to worry about some little jazz thing that I want to <laughs> do but they got back to us and they like the idea and they've given it given it a tick of approval so that's something I'm really looking forward to as well. That's amazing when does the festival kick off? The 12th of May. 12th of May, cool. Yeah, so it's 11 days of jazz um, and, and other stuff. I mean, jazz is such a huge um, umbrella term to me. And, you know, like Duke Ellington said, is you know, jazz is freedom of expression. So it's it's the most diverse program mm. um, that the festival's had, I think. Um, and a real mix of stuff. We've got some club shows where you can dance got some Ethio jazz, some like African sounding jazz and Latin jazz where you can kind of get up and boogie. And we're doing an outdoor New Orleans themed street party, um, doing a jazz poetry slam in the library. We've got a day of free workshops and masterclasses. And then we're doing a really elegant high tea in the town hall. Mm. Uh, and then there's a, a concert series as well. So I hate that cliche, something for everyone, but I wanted to you know, kind of showcases the most variety within the term jazz as possible. I think some people see the word jazz and they go, ooh, I don't like jazz. Or they they have certain connotations with the word. Um, but I urge people to explore because you've got nothing to lose really. No. Worst case scenario is you're exactly the same as you were now, just having had a more <laughs> culturally rich experience. Yeah. Um, and the best case scenario is you see something fucking awesome that blows your mind. Totally. Yeah. The sound, that Mad Max thing sounds incredible. What date is that? Uh, it's Tuesday the 17th of May. I will the be there. Yep. I will definitely be there. <laughs> that Duke Ellington quote that you just referenced is something that I'm quite fascinated by. I'm slightly envious of musicians. And when I say slightly, I mean, I'm very envious of musicians because I feel like music and stand-up comedy are probably the two rawest forms of creative expression that you can kind of perform live for an audience. And I'm really kind of 
intrigued by this experience that you have where you kind of become one with the people who you're performing for. Um, what, what kind of role in a kind of lofty way do you think that music can play in life? Well, it's a huge part of life. Music's there at all aspects of your life. You don't walk down the aisle to a movie. Mm. When it's your birthday, we sing a song. When you get married, we dance. At a funeral, they play songs. It's a, it accompanies every step of the way. It's there with us all the time. It's a huge part of life. Mm. And it's amazing when you you have those moments of that interactivity with the audience. I've done shows where I have been completely part of the furniture. Um, I've done a lot of those. Mm. I used to call myself the queen of background music, <laughs> which is, is fine. Yeah, um, yeah. But I used to do these kind of residency gigs overseas. I used to work at the Hilton Hotel in Japan where I'd sing in the lobby bar. And it was four 45-minute sets a night, six nights a week, live in the hotel. I did three six-month contracts in Japan. I did a contract in Dubai. I did one in Bangkok. I was on a cruise ship for a while in the Caribbean where it was, you know, that was kind of the job. But then I've also done shows where nobody is talking and everybody is intently listening. Mm. And and when you have those moments where someone you've struck a chord with someone and they're emotionally responding at the time, it is a pretty incredible feeling. Mm. I'm and can be intense for both both parties, I guess. Mm. I'm really starting to understand how much of life is really just about energy exchange. And I think music, probably more than anything else, is a really great example of that because you really are just kind of sharing in this kind of symbiotic when it's right obviously um and when it's cooking on three burners you know you really do have that kind of symbiosis between performer and audience where it's this cyclical kind of energy exchange and you're putting out your music and your kind of soul and they're giving you back their presence and their um, experience of that music. It's really amazing, I think. And the, the crowd have that within themselves as well. Mm. You know, and that's going back to what we were saying before about, you know, Lauren Hill, you go to the you go to that show and you, you want to hear all those songs off the miseducation of Lauren Hill exactly as per the CD. And you kind of think, why? Why do people want to hear it exactly the same as CD? Why don't they want to hear a, a new version? But People love that experience of singing along with the artist the song that they've been listening to for years and years mm. because it's this really joyous moment. And that's a, a big part of going to gigs for the audiences is that com communal feeling. So it's not even necessarily about being there with the artist. It's being in a room with thousands of other people that love that same thing that you do. And you might have been listening to that album on your own on your iPod for years, mm. but now you're in a room with 5,000 other people that all know every song off it as well and you're just grinning at each other like, yes, yeah. you know this song, <laughs> I know this song, you feel that, I feel that too, yeah. And, you know, it's it's crazy. It's a really infectious feeling. And, I mean, you get that in any kind of, I guess, big audience 
crowd situations like the footy or big sporting moments, that human feeling of all being together and that sense of community. And musicians, you know, are in these positions where we're able to bring people together in in that feeling. I'm definitely not at any level where I'm doing that for big crowds. And often when I'm performing my songs, there's people who haven't heard them before. And so it's always a, a different it's a different feeling. So when you're doing a cover song, everybody knows the song already. So their brain isn't processing a new song. Mm. They're just listening to how you're going about that song. But when it's a new voice they haven't heard before and a new person they're looking at they haven't seen before and new song, their brains are like processing so much stuff. And often the audience looks quite confused or a bit like, mm. um, but it's pretty amazing when people come to a gig to watch a whole set of original music. It's a bit of a, it can be a bit of a brain strain, I think. Mm. And they respond to it differently than when they've heard that song multiple times. Mm. So you kind of see on people's faces. I don't think people realize that as an audience, you know, we, we can see you. And <laughs> some people have the worst f- faces, you know, like when, when it gigs, because they, they don't, they don't, they don't think that anyone is looking at them, right? Yeah, they're just yeah. kind of, they might be concentrating, they might be bored. You don't know, but you know that saying, the resting bitch face, there's a lot of that. Right. A lot of scowling. And you think, oh my God, people hate it. And then the song finishes and they like grin and cheer really loudly and like, oh, they actually are liking it. Okay. Mm. That's why we like applause because it's the only way we know people are digging it. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> people's faces can get so blank. Mm. Mm. I think uh, Russell Brand says community is common unity, which I think is a, a lovely way of breaking down the word. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, and I think it's in line with what you're kind of saying about this common experience of music and the way that people relate to it and how it feeds their kind of soul, um, to make a pun. Uh, what is it that drives you forward as as an artist and what what is it that kind of inspires meaning for you to keep going and keep pursuing this dream? I think it's more of a compulsion. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's not. I've, it, it doesn't feel like a choice for me. It feels like something I, I have to do. Mm. But I really like putting on shows and putting together concepts and I like programming and I like putting you know, my radio program together. So I have those other things going on in my mind as well. Mm. Um, I'm not a kind of lock myself in the bedroom with the keyboard sort of musician. I like all the other stuff as well. Mm. And I get quite um, excited about, oh, how about this show where I could put this singer here and this collaboration. I think that's why I'm really enjoying the festival programming stuff because I'm getting to create opportunities for collaborations between artists that don't normally work together and propose ideas to them. Mm. Um, but it's definitely the events and marketing coordinator here at PBS he was saying to me once how much he loves music, but he was so glad that he didn't feel compelled to create his own music. Mm. He's like, I'm so glad I, I don't have, I'm not compelled to do that because it's so expensive and <laughs> so exhausting and tiring. And I just thought, oh, I've never really thought about it like that. But yeah, you do, I do feel compelled to do it and we'll keep doing it. Mm. Do you feel compelled? in a kind of fatalistic way? Is that something that you believe in? 
do you feel do you feel compelled by kind of design or do you feel compelled just creatively just creatively i would say i don't, I don't know really you know i guess things i don't know i've had you know a few of these conversations um my best friend's quite spiritual and quite a, can be quite philosophical at times about, you know, if we choose to do things or if it's meant to be and, you know, the power of now and all this kind of stuff. And it's great to have these. Um, I've got these really incredible water sign girlfriends in my life that spruik all of this kind of spiritual stuff at me. Mm. And it is good to have people around me raise those questions from time to time I guess because I don't I don't often think like that but yeah I don't know I don't I don't know but the one thing I do know is that um I I love music and I I feel like I've got so many more things that I want to do and I've always been quite um I've always loved writing lists and and getting on with things that I want to do and you know people kind of criticize being you know achievement orientated or goal orientated or whatever well fuck that if you've got (laughs) ambitions and dreams then go for it the other one that that shits me is the work-life balance thing and um my manager recently said to me she's like oh that work balancing's kind of shit i hate work balance as a saying because if my work is the thing that makes me really happy well then why do I need to enforce some balance where I do mundane other things that aren't making me happy just to appease this notion of how I should be spending my time Mm. I was like well yeah right on because I want to be doing music I want to be doing my radio program I love putting shows together and yeah I have some downtime sure I like to go to the pool and swim laps and you know read a magazine or Mm. You know, but I I don't want to do that 50% of the time. Mm. I'm happy with 10%. And to me, my relationships are very important. Um, I always have time for my family. I see my my girlfriends every week. I see my best friend every week. We're in, you know, we're texting constantly. And um, I see my brother. I fly into state to visit my friends a couple times a year. My friends are really important to me. So I guess I have less TV viewing time. Probably. Mm. Um, and we're sitting here on a Sunday in PBS yeah. in between you cutting your shows. Yeah. <laughs> doing a podcast. Yeah, but that's great. That's yeah. a good way to spend a Sunday. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. Something that I've really come to embrace is kind of that as a creative person, my pursuit is a lifestyle. It's not a job. And that's what it is. Like, Work balance is perhaps for people who don't necessarily enjoy what they do but are compulsively doing it. Whereas I think if you're a filmmaker or a musician, a, a painter, a poet, whatever, um, well, I mean, it could even be people who are more mainstream kind of professions, uh, academically or um, corporately driven. But if you love what you do, it's a lifestyle. It's not, a, it's no longer, it ceases to be a job because. My, I don't know about you, but my brain, my creative mind never turns off. Literally 24-7, I'm thinking creatively. I'm thinking about what I can do, who I can do it with, how I can do it, how I can execute it. And, you know, I'm not thinking about when the next break's coming or when, I, when a holiday's coming or when the weekend's coming or anything like that. 
not that I cast any judgment for people that may think that way, um, but certainly when you really believe in something and you really love it and you put your life into it, yeah, I don't think it really, I don't think there's a need for a work balance sort of thing. I think you've got to work out what your own balance is. Yeah. You know, that's that's the thing. You can't mm. you can't cast those judgments on on other people. Mm. And I do love and appreciate, you know, the people who are really close to me who say things to me like, you know, you need to slow down and da 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 because I do burn out. I do take on too much and then and then burn out and get sick. It's happened before. Mm. You know. Um but it's hard. It is hard to stop when you've got so many ideas that that you want to do. It's hard for people that aren't in creative industries to understand that. Mm. Yeah. But it's there's it's so exciting to have things come to fruition. You know, like I I recorded this album and you know I had a a real dream and a vision that I that I wanted to have an album. I mean, it's it's most musicians have this quest. It's like this you want to leave behind this kind of legacy of your your work and after being someone performing in the in the scene and internationally etc but I didn't have a collection of recordings you have this burning desire to put them down on on an album and then once you've done the album you've got this burning desire you want to tour and um you know and then I got asked to perform at Glastonbury Festival in the UK which was just one of such a huge mm, wow that's amazing yeah it was just an amazing moment um you know the booker um from Glastonbury came to one of my shows here in Melbourne and just walked onto the stage after I finished the last song. <laughs> yeah, and when you have someone walk onto the stage, you're usually like, security, what? Who is this person? Yeah, yeah. But he came onto the stage and grabbed, grabbed my hand and was like, hi, Chelsea, yeah, hi, Chelsea, I'm Malcolm from Glastonbury. I'd love to talk talk to you about getting in at the festival next year. And you're like, wow, amazing. That's amazing. You know, just incredible. And to go all the way to the UK and have my songs played on BBC and do radio interviews with people doing soul shows but in London and digging the album is just huge. So, of course, you're like, well, I want to do this again, you mm. know, and you, you you want to keep going. So even though it can be really hard because there's, you know, there's maybe no money involved and, and there's those kinds of times of poverty and um, working with musicians can be difficult at times. Mm. Um, but you just, you keep going. Mm. Yeah, the only certainty in a creative life is uncertainty. Yeah. Um, it seems like a really awesome place to uh, to kind of wrap this up. Chelsea Wilson, where can the good people out there in the coming up next work find your stuff? Well, I've got a website. It's chelseawilson.com.au. Mm. Um, I'm on social media. I'm not the queen of social media, but <laughs> I do the odd post. Mm. Instagram. I like Instagram. Um, What's your Insta? Oh, I think it's Chelsea Wilson Music. Cool. And my radio program's on PBS on Thursdays at 11 a.m. Awesome. And your album, I Hope You'll Be Very Unhappy Without Me, is available on iTunes. It is, and it's it's on vinyl, so you can pick it up um, at record stores like Northside Records, um, places like that, mm. readings, or you can pick it up online through Bandcamp. Awesome. Well, we're going to play another one of your tunes in just a second, but I wrap every interview up with the same question, which is, what makes you silly? Oh, what makes me silly? Um, <laughs> um, I don't know. 
I guess um, possibly too many red wines <laughs> with my girlfriend. <laughs> bit of Kylie Minogue. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Put on a bit of Kylie and dance around in pretty much. hot pants? Yeah. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. Janet Jackson videos. Right. What do you end up doing after a couple of reds and a bit of Janet Jackson? <laughs> uh, nothing Nothing too crazy. I know. Nothing Nothing too crazy. Mm. Yeah. But do, do you love a lounge room boogie? That's for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Thanks for having me.